Good morning out there, everybody. You're listening to The Savvy Entrepreneur. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM, and we're located in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel. Every week, I bring on guests to talk about either their journey as an entrepreneur or resources for entrepreneurs. I do this because I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself. I've counseled lots of startups, small businesses as part of my law practice and consulting business over the past 30 years, really. I've seen a lot of mistakes. And more than that, I've helped start or started nine different businesses. And I have made so many mistakes along the way. So my passion is really to help other entrepreneurs out there, all you business people who are either running your business, maybe you're thinking about starting a business, but the idea is to provide resources, target common mistakes, point out solutions, and also just to inspire. We have lots of entrepreneurs that join us on the show and their stories are always interesting and full of nuggets of helpful information. I always welcome your comments, questions or suggestions, there's a topic you'd like to hear about, got an issue or a challenge, or just want to share a great resource or even shoot the breeze, I'd always love to hear from you. You can email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. And so without further ado, I promised you a guest and a guest we have today. Our topic today is about selling and sourcing products and components outside the U.S. And to help explain some of these challenges, with us today is Beth Pride. She's the president of her company called BPE Global. Now, Beth has a wealth of experience. She brings 30 plus years of operational expertise in global trade and international logistics to help their clients develop their global trade strategy. She offers subject matter expertise on export licensing and management, product control classification, operating procedures, and export management and compliance program design. She also has lots of experience on the import side of things, and we'll talk about both today. She's a licensed customs broker, and she also has counseled clients over the years on many ways to save money and stay out of trouble, both on the global import and export side. She describes herself as a global trade evangelist. She's the author of a number of benchmarking reports and articles. She's a frequent speaker. She's been very active in many global trade organizations, including being the past chair and president of Women in International Trade, which hopefully Beth will have a little time to talk about today. And she was awarded the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center's Established Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2018, which also I hope we'll have some time to talk about, and was named one of DC Velocity's 2011 Rainmakers and the Organization of Women in International Trade Member of the Year in 2006. Now, prior to forming her own company, BPE Global, in 2004, she held senior roles at Kiva, HP, and DHL. So with that introduction, Beth, welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Doris. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this because I know there are lots of companies, big but also small, who source products, components from outside the U.S. or have customers outside the U.S. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I think probably the best place to start is for you to tell our listeners just a little bit about your firm, BP Global. Um, How did you get into trade compliance and how and when did you start your company and just some of the background of how BP Global came to be? Sure. Um, Well, no one sets out to become a global trade compliance person. I've learned that when I meet people and ask them how they got into business, they all have great stories. And and mine is quite like that. I started out as a truck driver. I was um, putting myself through. 
yes, I was putting myself through college and it was a great job and I absolutely loved doing it. And when I graduated college with my degree in physical therapy, it just wasn't the right time to be at a hospital. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And so I actually kept driving and as a driver got promoted to be a dispatcher. And then um, I ended up working for DHL and running HP's import compliance program. The last job I ever actually applied for was that DHL job back in 1990. And pretty much from that point on, just word of mouth referrals and working with me led me to the very next opportunity that I took. So it was interesting because I've always wanted to be in an executive leadership role, managing a company, setting its goals and objectives. And I realized that I was not going to get that from Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard is a fabulous company, but um, I wanted to, to get executive leadership experience and knew I couldn't get that at HP. So I left and went to a global ma trade management software startup, and it was really night and day. So at HP, I could do things, and my 140,000 coworkers had no idea who I was or what I was doing. When I moved into the startup, it was just so brilliant because I felt that my actions made an impact on the business every day and every person in the company understood that, you know, what I was doing, what my intentions were and, and how it helped the company and the business. And so I ran uh, marketing and product management for a couple global trade management startups. And the last person I ever worked for 15 years ago um, was my CEO. And I asked him, how we were doing with regards to getting funding. We were about to run out of money. And he said, there's two reasons why we're not getting the funding. And the first reason is our product is just too expensive to make. And the second is, he said, we have too many executives. And I said, well, fire an executive. And so he fired me on the spot. Um, and it was, it was quite uh, unexpected, to say the, the least. We had a great talk, and we decided to tell the entire team exactly word for word what the discussion was. And I went home, he called me and invited me to lunch the next day and I took him up on it and he told me I was ready. I was ready to run my own company. He actually even named the company BPE and it's been 15 years and it's been an amazing experience. So right now we're five women. We absolutely focus on import-export compliance only. We deal with every kind of industry under the sun, and we just, we love what we do. What's the story behind BPE? Is BP Beth Pride, or? It's actually an even funnier story. So it was Beth Peterson Enterprises, and then in 2011, I got a divorce, so I had to change my name. I didn't have to change my name. I chose to change my name. My maiden name does not begin with a P, so I actually looked in our family history, and um, we have the name Pride that goes back many, many generations. I think it's eight generations, and so I asked my niece, Hannah Pride, if I could take her name, and it, the rest is history. I became Beth Pride, the company Beth Peterson Enterprises. We just shortened the name to BPE Global. And uh, now when people ask me what it stands for, I just tell them it's the best people ever. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. And, you know, what I love about it is it's kind of the, the allegory of starting fresh, right? Completely reinventing yourself. And that's a lot of what I think being a successful entrepreneur is about is every week, Every month, you always need to be rethinking things, tweaking things, sometimes completely reinventing what you're doing. Well, a couple of points on that, which I think are really important for entrepreneurs. So BethPetersonEnterprises.com is a heck of a long URL to have to type in. So it was a really poor choice. I, I really appreciate my, my ex-CEO, um, but it was a really poor choice of a business name. And so we had already pretty much shortened the company name to BPE Global. We had changed our URL, I think it was in 2007, to BPE Global. And so it was a logical abbreviation of the company name. And so when people think about what to name their company, many people use their own names. I just would uh, caution if somebody has changed their names and their name might change again, 
they might want to use their initials instead of their full name just for the sake of their potential customers who have to type the whole name in. <laughs> right, right. That That's great advice. Talk a little bit about how you got started. As a small solopreneur and provider of professional services, I know from a personal standpoint how very difficult it often is to get started and to have a consistent flow of business. I'll just say personally, it's been very difficult because there are times when you've got so much work and clients who are like, I need this now. And then times when it just seems like crickets are chirping. The other mistake I know I've made is that I would get a project and I'd be so busy working on the project that I would forget about running the business. And then when the project ended, it was great money while it was there. But then, you know, then you have to ramp up the marketing. And sometimes, at least I found, it can take quite a while. You know, the sales cycle can be kind of long for some people. Some people, it's just, I need this now. But other people, when it's a, a more strategic kind of project, it can often take a, a a fair bit of time because they have other competing interests and budget concerns and things like that. So talk a little bit about how you got started and your business model and how you dealt with some of those issues. Yeah, I mean, your questions are spot on. And this is the problem that most most companies face when they, they are founded. I had a, a dis, additional complexity when I founded BPE Global. BPE Global is a consulting firm. Well, if you look at my experience, which you know is lengthy, I was known as an importer exporter. I was known as an executive, but I was never known as a consultant. I never did a consulting job in my life. And yeah. so there wasn't a pool of ready-made clients that I could just call up and say, guess what? I hung out my own shingle and it's time for you to hire me. Um, so, <laughs> so I took what I think is a really... I recommend it to a lot of people, um, a, a very creative approach. So in our business, we have several publications. Now we have podcasts like yours that get our names out into the press. And so there was this, there is to this day an amazing publication called American Shipper Magazine. And they published the latest on what was happening in global trade, you know, export control reform. They were publishing about import tariffs, all kinds of and pirates, lots of pirate stories. And so what I did is I actively sought out the reporters at American Shipper Magazine and got to know them. And before I would approach them, I would have thought of three stories, headlines that I could pitch to them that I could talk about, you know, are you thinking about X? Are you thinking about Y? Are you thinking about Z? Give them my opinion, help them frame the story. And what I found is every time I ran into these off these reporters, I would end up with a headline. I would end up with something that I could cite and send out to my mailing list says best pride believes you should think about this this way. And that was a remarkable way to get people thinking about things and, and seeing my name as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I highly recommend is we have quite a few trade associations. Women in International Trade Northern California is one of them. The America's Association of Exporters and Importers is another. And what I would do is I would join their leadership. So I was the secretary of WITMC. And I joined the committees, the uh, import and the membership committee at AEI. And before I knew it, I was volunteering to run a panel at a conference or to host a committee and to facilitate a committee call. And it was just absolutely fabulous because the people who were joining those calls or coming to those panel discussions would see Beth Pride, a consultant, being introduced as a expert in the field. And I think my third client was Boeing. I stepped wow. down off the podium after we had a great discussion on some kind of, you know, export control regulation. I stepped down off the podium and, and Bruce from Boeing handed me his card and said, we need to hire you. And wow. I got a great contact with Boeing. And so do things that allow you 
to get your name in the press, to market yourself. And the best way to show people how great of a performer you are is to actually volunteer and to perform. And so if you're not a member of your trade association, if you're not volunteering for committees to get the word out on what your industry cares about, think about it. It's absolutely wonderful. And then that goes to your other point is you get that great gig and that great gig happens and you get all consumed in the great gig. Well, you can't. You always have to have marketing activities going on. And so I have a marketing calendar. It's 12 quadrants. Literally every month I have to be writing an article or I have to have some kind of trade event that I am speaking at or doing a webinar or participating in. And I pre-schedule all of these things and I do a, a monthly yeah. newsletter. And so oh. my marketing plan is set in stone and I will constantly be beating that drum as opposed to getting sucked into a project. I forget the, um, the TV show about always be selling, but in this case, I think it's always be marketing. <laughs> It's and important. I think, and I think you just, yeah, you just confirmed that. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who do import and export compliance, including government agencies who will do some of it for free. So, how do you distinguish BP Global? I mean, what is your value proposition? How do you set yourself apart from some of the competition out there? Yeah, I mean, our competition is the big accounting firms. I mean, they all have global trade compliance practices. You know, Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, you know, we, we, we love them. They're great people, but they're massive firms. And we're a very nimble five-woman firm. And we love global trade. We actually have fun doing our job. We yeah. are thrilled to learn about new products. So we bring a very... Um, very much more informal approach to how we do it, a love of what we do. And we also, because we all came from the operations, we know how to run a multi-billion dollar export-import operation. We can walk right into our clients' operations and start pulling the levers and tell them how to save money and, and help them to make their processes more efficient and help you know, them train their employees. I think that is a very important distinction because, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the Fortune 500 world, too, and worked with a lot of consultants. And there's a lot of great thought leadership and very, very smart people working for some of these firms. But some of their recommendations from an operational perspective are not terribly practical. I think when you come from that world and know what it's like to have a recommendation placed on you and to be told, okay, this is what you need to implement. I mean, when you are so able to put yourself in the shoes of your client, it gives you a very different perspective, I think. We recently had an experience like that and I'm on the cusp of having a similar experience. You know, we walked into a customer and they said the government came in and they're investigating us. And they've said that we didn't have an export license for something we exported. And I just sat down and said, well, tell me about what you exported. And I classified the product. And it turns out they had misclassified the product. It didn't require an export license. But the way they read the regs wasn't the way the regs were intended to be read. And we checked out the technical parameters of the item and it turns out no license was required. So we were able to go back to that government official that's badge out gun waving and say, chill, this is not what you need to be enforcing. This is something that doesn't need a license. And by the way, the client has put in all these great export compliance program procedures so you don't have to worry about them. We're all on the same size. And it actually worked out perfectly. So again, it's not, we don't, nothing in global trade compliance should be overwhelming and the end of the world. We can solve most problems with just care and logic and then teach the client a healthy respect for those laws and regulations that they came close to violating or potentially violated and put in processes that keep them from doing that in the future. Well, I think that's a perfect place to pivot a little bit, talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that small businesses face 
So, you know, I'm a small business person and I, I'm now looking at maybe because of the cost of my product or some of the components or other supply chain issues, I probably should look at maybe sourcing some components or products from outside the U.S. What are some of the key things that you've seen that go into that calculation and some of the most common mistakes? Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody defaults to the most common mistake, which is, oh, it'll be cheaper to make it in China. And I, I think everybody can probably presume that given the current trade war right now, that might be something that you should take a double take on. But let me give you a real time example. So it's actually was one of my first, first clients and they manufactured ink in Detroit and they were had a wonderful mom and pop operation. And then they decided it would be brilliant to move the ink manufacturing offshore. Now, they did not ask us, so we weren't able to sit down and talk through the implications of them moving it. They went and got local ingredients in China. They hired a team in China so that they could pay a lower labor rate. But they realized that the ink was going to be the best ink that they could make if they shipped the secret sauce from the United States to China. Uh And it turns out that the Chinese, when you mix the secret sauce with the Chinese ingredients, they consider it still a U.S. origin product. And so there was an export tax levied on the ink. So the company that thought they were going to save all this money on labor, and yes, they did save money on labor, ended up paying more money because of the export tax that they had to pay to get the ink out of China to the rest of the world. And so that's when they called us. They called us and said, we're going to shut down our operations in China and we're going to move the ink back to Detroit so it'll be cheaper. Unfortunately, Detroit considers the ink that my client manufactures to be hazardous material. And so when they applied to move back to the U.S. to manufacture the ink that they had already made in the U.S., Detroit said, no, it's it's hazardous material. We're not going to let you ever make it here. And so now the ink stays in China, and to add insult to injury, the um, Section 301 tariffs have been applied to ink, and so now on top of that export tax, there's a U.S. import section tax of 25% on the ink. So my client ended up trying to reduce their costs, but increase their costs significantly. And so the good news is, you know, there's always a, another way. And so we're now working on what's called a duty drawback program. So when we import those inks into the U.S. and then re-export them around the world, we're getting 99% of the duties back as part of a drawback program that we're setting up for this client. So things are fixable. It's just the obvious doesn't always happen. And it's really important for people who are thinking of offshoring to truly calculate an absolute landed cost. You know, what are the duties I'm gonna pay? What are the taxes I'm gonna pay? What's my transportation, my insurance, my packaging? Do I have to have licensing fees? Do I need a hazmat expert? And so consider your total land cost whenever you are crossing a border before you actually make that move to cross that border because you might not be able to move back. Well, it's it's a risk balancing too because obviously anytime you lengthen your supply chain, you add a lot of variables and trade terms can change between countries. Things like whoever predicted the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, there's all sorts of things to factor in. Even some of them that may seem far-fetched, I think businesses are probably now re-looking at their supply chains and looking at, as well as the cost, the various kinds of risks that might be involved. Everyone is looking at moving their supply chain out of China. I can't say that everyone is going to move their supply chain out of China, but I can tell you that everybody is looking at those increased costs due to the trade wars, the increased administrative burden now to get licenses to move a lot of goods into China and Hong Kong. This has been massive. And so people who are used to sourcing in Hong Kong and China or selling to Hong Kong and China are definitely looking at their their cost of goods sold. Talk about some of the other kinds of common risks when you're importing products or components. Yeah, so a lot of companies 
don't realize that the goal of customs is to protect the customs of the, you know, the country that they're responsible for. So things like cotton, we used to be a massive cotton manufacturing country. We don't make a lot of cotton anymore, but cotton is one of the things that customs heavily manages and, and oversees. So there's a cotton fee if you bring in denim. There are uh, additional charges that are associated with bringing in things made of cotton. The classification of things made out of cotton, huge, huge hoops because we were a cotton producing nation for a long time. Another thing to think about is they protect intellectual property. Customs, one of their biggest charter is to make sure that if it's an American product, that there aren't knockoffs brought into the U.S. Mm. And so a really good example is, well, two, I want to talk about twofold. One is on the, um, if you offshore your manufacturing, and I'm going to pick on China again, there's the potential that your intellectual property could be stolen. And we had a beauty product customer that was manufacturing their product in China, but it got knocked off so quickly that the client is no longer in business. Mm. Now, on the import side, the U.S. Customs Service actually sits down with a lot of companies, Duracell Batteries. They sat down with Microsoft and they sit down and say, how can we protect our U.S. companies? And they do that by targeting import containers and looking for any kind of intellectual property violations. And so if you haven't gotten authorization on something you've made um, and are making a statement that, that it includes that product, they will highly likely catch it if you use somebody else's brand when you don't have the authority to. So you have to be very, very careful and realize you better be on the up and up when you make your design. But the other thing is if you're manufacturing a product that tends to have a lot of knockoffs, you're going to have import delays because they're going to constantly be pulling your shipments and inspecting them to make sure you're not one of those black market or gray market vendors. And so yeah. you just have to factor those kind of things into place. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break, Beth, for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. Folks, we'll be right back with Beth Pride, the president of BPE Global, talking about importing and exporting. I'm Doris Nagel, and you're listening to The Savvy Entrepreneur. And our guest today is Beth Pride, president of BPE Global. Now, uh, before the break, Beth, we were talking about some of the issues involved with importing products and components that companies need to take into consideration. Let's switch gears for a little bit and talk about the export side, because I know your company advises clients on both importing and exporting issues. You know, there comes a point for a lot of small companies, sometimes it's right away, where a company will decide to start serving customers outside the country. Sometimes it's a planned strategy, and a lot of times it's government agencies referred to as accidental exporters. So what are some of the common mistakes and misconceptions you see when companies start to serve customers that are outside their home country? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because this is a really biggie. So we had a, we had, actually, this is not even a client of ours. So the company I'm going to talk about is a, a graduate of the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center in San Francisco, and they're a nonprofit that helps companies start and grow small businesses. I'm a graduate of the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center. And so this one company, they made um, food that your toddler would be interested in eating, and the food was actually frozen vegetable patties. I'm not a toddler, but I heard it was great and toddlers loved it. It was selling at Whole Foods. It was selling in every major grocery store around the U.S. And they got a call from Sainsbury in the U.K. And Sainsbury said, our English toddlers need your food. And so the owner of this company decided she wanted to start exporting to Sainsbury. And luckily, she remembered what I did. And so she called me and said, I've got an order, you know, a small order of a couple dozen different flavors, and I need to get this over to Sainsbury in the UK. Well, it turns out you need a refrigerated container to move frozen food from the US to Europe. And so her couple dozen of shipments 
was going to turn into a multi-thousand dollar shipment because they needed to procure a reefer container, a refrigerated container. And so we were able to help them find a broker who moves a lot of products that needs to be refrigerated to the UK. And we were able to advise them on Incoterms. And Incoterms says who pays for what in an international trade deal. So what does the seller pay for? What does the buyer pay for? In certain terms, the buyer pays for everything. In other terms, the seller pays for everything. And Sainsbury was a very smart global trader and had negotiated with this company to use deliver duty paid, which means the seller is going to pay for everything. So you have to pay for the container, you have to pay for the insurance, you have to pay for the packing and the transportation, and it gets very expensive for a $500 sale. Yeah, And And so we were able to fix that. I'm going to interrupt you just really quickly to make a little plug for folks to go to the Incoterms website. I don't remember the website, but uh, if you type in Wikipedia, go to Wikipedia. It's great. (laughs) No, I think a lot of people have no idea when they're first starting out of how many different steps are involved in an international export transaction. If you don't understand all the different parties that touch it and different things that need to happen, you'll probably come out on the short end of whatever shipping terms you've arranged, uh, I think, as you're suggesting, because each of those steps has a cost associated with it. And, you know, obviously, the more of them that you take on, as you're alluding to, the more it's going to cost you. (laughs) And, you know, likewise, if you've got a customer and you try to push it all onto the customer, that also, I think, uh, can be challenging because then you you may turn out to be a supplier that is not cost effective for them. Anyway, I'm just going to plug for that as a resource. I'm so glad you did. I I think it's a, a great place to at least start so that businesses can kind of piece out all the different parts of the transaction. No, you're perfect. And and the one thing I want to say is not one incoterm fits all sizes. So just because you're a company with one product doesn't mean that you have just one incoterm. You may have a incoterm you use when you're going to a trade show, when you're shipping that product to a trade show to demonstrate versus an incoterm that you use when you're selling it to a customer that is buying your product versus you are taking a defective item and returning it to the vendor to repair it. Every single different supply chain, you need to look at those incoterms and set up what the appropriate incoterm is for that individual supply chain and region and customer, maybe. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you alluded to that. Servicing and returns are something that I've, at least I've seen in the past that companies don't always put enough thought into. I mean, it's one thing to sell a physical product, and if it's one that doesn't need any servicing or is unlikely to be returned, that's one thing. But <laughs> there's a lot of ancillary things that often go along with it, as you've alluded to. Well, and you have to put up a, a, a process in place and, and make hard decisions. So if you have a product is it worth repairing or do you just send out a new copy of that product and a new version of that product so that you don't have to pay for all the logistics and transportation and customs and duties and taxes to bring the defective broken product back into the U.S. Um, And I'm going to extend that a little bit more because this is another export example. So when you have product that needs repair, you might hire a field service engineer to actually repair your product rather than in bringing it back to the US. And what a lot of people don't realize is that export controls apply to physical exports from the US. It applies to re-exports from let's say, I I ship something to China and then from China I send it to Morocco. The same US export regulations apply to the China to Morocco leg of that transaction. And then the third thing is the transfer of technology. So the know-how to repair, to operate, to um, manufacture, to produce, all of the know-how to make a U.S.-controlled product applies. So if I have a field service engineer 
that's going down to my uh, facility in Lebanon to fix my high-tech router, they actually may need an export license to do that work because they have know-how that is controlled and requires an export license. So you got to think about all aspects of your business, not just the first sale, but the support as well. You know, it's interesting. I did a project a couple of years ago with CDW, and one of the things that they do a lot of is they remote into their foreign customers' systems to fix things. So yeah, I think most of us have had the experience, right, where you call your service provider for some kind of software support, and they say, would it be okay if I take over control of your system and and they troubleshoot it and it's very effective but if you are sitting in the u.s and you're remoting into a customer system somewhere else that might be an export and absolutely i'm so glad you brought that up people don't think about that and even a company like cdw at the time had never thought about that so exports crop up i think in lots of different ways that people don't even think about. Right. What are some of the common mistakes you've seen with companies that are getting started exporting? Well, they fail to classify their products. That's probably the big one. <laughs> they just don't bother to see. And, and I'll give you a great example. There's, it's a device. It, it converts frequency. It's used in planes, trains, and automobiles. And a frequency converter is pretty much used for anything that moves. Frequency converters are not controlled for export anywhere in the world except for the embargo countries. But the reality is the knowledge of how to make a frequency converter is highly controlled and you can only have U.S. or Canadian nationals work on that technology. And so we get a lot of export licenses for non-U.S. persons to work on frequency converter technology. Now, since everybody in the world uses it, so you can imagine a auto manufacturer would need to have that an engineer that can work on it. And so we also can work with the engineers and with the manufacturer to say, well, all of these export control rules are related to technical parameters. It operates at a certain megahertz. It has so many, you know, spins per cycle. And if we can work with the manufacturer to say, well, make it operate under the technical parameter through software or physical constraints, so that it just can't meet the export control requirements, then it doesn't need a license. And so a really good example, working with aircraft manufacturers, unmanned aircraft, the technology to build it and the airplane itself, highly controlled, needs an export everywhere except for Canada. If we put a switch in the cockpit so that the pilot has to flip that switch every 15 minutes, it cannot be a man- unmanned aircraft. It has to have a pilot in it. So it is no longer classified as an unmanned vehicle. And so that's how we can help our clients design their products, get their products around the world. And then five years from now, when they're ready to get the licenses and sell the unmanned vehicle, great, we'll get them the license. But this way they can get their product in the countries to the the people who want to buy their product in the long run and, and build their business. So there's ways to structure how you design your product. So you've alluded to the fact that Many products require a license depending on the country you're selling it to or even uh, I think the use that you're going to put it to or your customer will. You also alluded to issues with classification. I mean, what, what is that and why do companies have to classify anything? And I believe classification is the basis of everything that you build your trade compliance program around. So there's two types of classifications. One is the harmonized schedule, which tells you what your item is and what it's duty at. So if I have a remote control for my TV, that item classification will be the same in every country around the world. But depending on the country, the duties that are assessed may vary. So I think it's 2.7% into the U.S., it may be 0% into China. And so it's a really important thing to get right. If you get it wrong, not only could you be paying duties that you shouldn't pay, but now with these trade wars, the additional section tariffs that are being added of 5 to 25%, you could be paying all your margin and more 
towards the import of a product that you've misclassified. So that's, that's the what is the item, the import classification that's assigned. Then there's the export control number. And that tells you how the product is controlled from an export perspective. And there's a global agreement that all countries, most countries follow, that we all agree to this codification system that tell me how my product is controlled from a router to a piece of fabric to a pencil. And it may either be commercial or dual use, meaning it could be used for both military or commercial purposes, or it's a defense product. And defense products tend to be much higher controlled and you need licenses to ship them anywhere in the world. And so you definitely need both of those classifications to write a marketing strategy, to write your pricing, to figure out how you're going to get your goods into a country. Because if you're making something in the U.S. that requires a U.S. export license, but your number one competition is in Taiwan and they can get to the rest of the world without a license, I can tell you it's a non-starter. You, yeah. you, you won't be able to compete if the, there isn't quality issues. So again, you've got to think of, you've got to classify your product just like, you know, you priced your product, you figure out how to package your product. You got to figure out what the total land of cost and the license and permit requirements are for your product. So uh, it sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces, either when you're importing or you're considering exporting. Talk a little bit about some of the best practices. What should small businesses who are just getting into either importing, exporting, what what should they be doing? Landed cost. That's the bottom line is figure out your landed cost. Know what you want to buy, where you're going to buy it from. Figure out what it's going to cost you to move it. Are you moving it ocean versus air? Figure out what your income terms are. What are you paying for in that transaction? What are your import clearance fees? What are your duties and your taxes? And figure that into your landed costs. When people figure out cost of goods sold, they tend to look at the bill of materials and bill of materials alone. You need to look at not only the bill of materials, but the cost for acquisition of the components of the bill of materials and the cost of fulfillment of the finished product. So expand your idea on COGS, calculate landed costs, And that will help you get around a lot of bumps that you're going to run into. If if you just start buying something from China and don't realize that you need to pay a customs broker to make your customs entry and they do a line of credit check and there's a whole list of things you need to do. And and you want to make sure you know those before you send the shipment. Well, and I'm guessing because of all the complexities you're probably suggesting if you're trying this for the first time, you may want to get some help. This is probably not something you should attempt by yourself the first time. You should find resources to help you make sure that you're making smart decisions because you can spend a lot of money only to find like your your ink manufacturer, for example, that you didn't spend your money very wisely. Now, and you alluded to this, I think, at the very beginning of this interview, the government websites, they have buckets of free training. They have guides importing into the USA. If you don't have a copy of that, get it. And so there are free resources where the government agencies tell you what is available. They tell you how to do it. They tell you how to classify your product. It's pretty amazing. The other thing, and these are the most unloved resources out there because people just ignore how much power and beauty they give us, but the couriers, so DHL, FedEx, UPS, every one of them have landed cost calculators. If you go in to create a shipment in any one of these courier systems, it will ask you to classify your product. It will give you tools to classify your product. And once you've classified your product, there's a little box at the bottom of the data entry screen that says, would you like to calculate landed costs? And so read the screens as you go through, and they'll tell you also the documentation requirements. And so it doesn't mean that you have to spend money, but you have to be open and aware, and you have to go in with the intention to be compliant and get it right. Because if you don't, I don't care about, and, and you can call me on this, I don't care about violating the U.S. import-export regulations. What I care about is creating viable businesses. And if you're not going to comply with those rules, you're not going to be in business long enough to you know, reap the value of all the time and energy you put into starting your own business. 
And mm -hmm. so go out there, get the help, read the screens. You, if you're going to ship, these tools are amazing. A couple of those careers are our clients and we've helped them build those tools. So, you know, definitely use the resources that are available to you. There's a lot out there. Right, right, right. And there are experts like you to turn to if some of it's not making sense or you still have some questions that need to get reviewed or things that you need to be thinking through to make sure you've connected all the dots. Yeah, and that's a really important point. I mean, a lot of people think they have to get a full-time person to do this. this. In some companies, this might not be a full-time job. So hiring somebody for a couple hours who has years, decades of experience is actually better than hiring somebody to do it. We have a very big line that we give people. It's like, we're not going to move in with you. If you need us full-time, we're going to help you find somebody that can be that full-time person and we'll train them. We're too small of a firm to take over that big of a role, but we'll, we'll take care of you if you just need us a little bit. Well, but I think what you've alluded to is there are a lot of requirements and you can learn them, but you do need to make sure that you have somebody who has the adequate bandwidth and time to really learn them and to do it because it's not a simple thing. It's, uh, it can be very time consuming, but uh, as you've alluded to, if you don't take the time to do it and invest in that, either internally or externally or some combination, you may find that uh, you, you didn't allocate your money very wisely and come to regret it later, unfortunately. Exactly. And I actually have a, a, a story to tell that ties into that really well. So a client of ours, we were talking to her and she said, I've got to go. I just got a $4,500 FedEx bill. And I said, well, let me look at it. And it turns out it wasn't even the customs duties and taxes. It was the shipping charges. And it was a shipment that was very, very lightweight. But the person that shipped it, shipped it in a, in three or four very large boxes that were very long, very big, and they put a lot of paper in it. And the shipment, we call it dimmed out. The courier charged a dimensional weight, not the physical weight, because the product, the boxes took up so much room in the container that it wasn't going to be profitable for them. So because of the way the shipper packaged the things, they spent $4,500 on the shipment. And so really hit that landing cost calculator button when you're doing your shipping so that you don't have that and build processes that say, if you spend more than $1,500 on transportation, you have to get approval first. Otherwise, you're paying for it out of your own pocket. So things like that to build a strong company that just doesn't bleed money away. You know, we're almost out of time. That's some really fantastic advice. And I hope companies that are listening and take it to heart. Before we wrap up, I'd love to spend just a couple of minutes, Beth, talking about a couple of groups that I know you've been very closely involved with. And one of those is the Renaissance Center. And the other is the association that you referenced, Women in International Trade. Talk a little bit about your involvement with both of those organizations and, and what they do. Yeah. So I wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for Renaissance. I took their business planning class in 2005. My brother is actually in their class this year. It's fabulous. And they really, they teach people how to start small businesses and, and, and they don't tell you what kind of business to, to build. They don't tell you, you know, what your marketing messaging is, but it, they tell you and teach you the elements of running a healthy business. So money, marketing, and management, making sure you have all of your ducks in a row for getting that marketing message out there, pricing your products correctly, managing, having the right corporate structure or LLC, and then doing the actual work getting making sure you have hired the right people to do the work so renaissance is based in the san francisco bay area we have four or five different offices classes in east palo alto oakland san francisco we have two offices in san francisco and it's just an amazing organization and i will support it for the rest of my life question about the renaissance center is it uh, a for fee kind of thing so you apply to be part of the program and pay a fee or yeah, so I believe classes are $1,000 for their 12-week business planning class, but it's a sliding scale. 
So if you can prove that you've been impacted by COVID or have lost your job, the rate will be lower. And I sponsored two students this past class. And so we bring in sponsors to help people take the class that might not have the resources to do it. Wow, that's fantastic. And I, I don't know, I'm sure there are other similar kinds of centers in different parts of the country. So that's definitely a resource, certainly if you're in the Bay Area, but even if you're not, there might be something similar in your area. And, and I'm sorry, I started to interrupt you as you were talking about women in international trade. Yeah, so go into their program tomorrow night from 5.30 to 8 p.m. Anybody who wants to attend it, they put on programs every Wednesday. I think it's the second Wednesday of every month. This week's event is the Bureau of Industry and Security Export Control Roundtable. The speakers are the people who make up the rules at the Bureau of Industry and Security, and they've just issued a couple new rules, and so we'll be able to ask them directly what does that rule mean to my company? How do I implement that rule? I mean, it's absolutely an invaluable program. Um, we usually have 100 to 150 people come in person because of the COVID. And this, this is good news to all your listeners. You can now join remotely and uh, enjoy the event from the uh, luxury of your own home wow. and uh, get this kind of I mean, the caliber of speakers that we have at the WITNC events is just phenomenal. So it's wit-nc.com. It's the Northern California chapter. I was the secretary, I believe, for five years and the president for seven years. I'm a past chair. It is just one of the best organizations that I've ever been a part of. And so highly recommend that people attend it. And uh, I've heard the same, even sitting here in Chicago. So your fame and fortune has traveled a long distance. But I, I think the uh, Women in International Trade is its a national organization, maybe even an international organization. It and is. There are yep. chapters it, elsewhere, right? There are chapters elsewhere. One in Nigeria, the strongest chapter. Widency is one of the strongest chapters. There's a Chicago chapter. There's a DC chapter, which puts on multiple programs every year. It's just, it's an amazing organization and it's been around for quite some time. Fabulous. Well, one last question before we let you go, Beth, because we're almost out of time. How can people reach you and BPE Global, either to talk about maybe the Renaissance Center or Women in International Trade, or maybe they need the assistance or think they might need BPE Global's help? What's the best way for people to reach you? Oh, they can find our website at bpeglobal.com or email me at Beth at B as in boy, P as in Peter, E as in Edward, global.com. Fantastic. Beth, thank you so much for being with us this week. It was really great having you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the chance to share the knowledge. And I appreciate it as well. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to our guest today, Beth Pride, president of BPE Global. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, which is globalocityservices.com. There's a library there, blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources for entrepreneurs. Be sure to join us next Saturday when we'll have another great guest. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurship.